Hello and welcome to Finding the Glitter in the Gold, a Riddle Earth Lord of the Rings chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And as always, we are discussing the works of John Ronald Rayul Tolkien, who was writing stories set in Middle-earth from 1937, when he was 45, up until his death in 1973, when he still had not made an internally consistent narrative. So any mistakes that we make with our facts or little minutiae that we talk about are because we are making like J.R.R. Tolkien and we're just making shit up. This particular episode is a continuation of our last one uh, on architecture. We talked about the architecture in the movies a whole bunch, which was awesome because the movies are all that I have to go on for Lord of the Rings. Uh, and we're going to continue that this time because we had so much more that we could just talk about. So, Zoe, do you want to tell us what we're talking about today? <laughs> so, as Hannah desired last week to talk about um, elvish and dwarf architecture, I was like, well, I guess I have more things to study. Uh, <laughs> so we will be delving into elvish and dwarfish architecture today. Lovely. And this will be kind of fun with you, Hannah, because you have a good sense of different kinds of architecture. And there was a contentious debate. Mm. around elvish architecture that I am looking forward to getting your insight on. Sure. <laughs> Sweet. So we'll start with elves. Most folks that I researched um, were all in agreement that the elvish architecture took a lot from the Art Nouveau movement. And the Art Nouveau movement was an offshoot of the arts and crafts movement that we talked about that was related to Hobbiton and the Shire. Yeah. So Art Nouveau was an ornamental style of art that flourished between about 1890 and 1910 throughout Europe and the United States. It's characterized by its use of long, sinuous, organic line and was employed most often in architecture, interior design, jewelry, and glass design. You uh, get to see some of this with Mucha, the artist Alphonse Mucha. He did a lot of very stylized um, advertisement campaigns with Art Nouveau style. Um, so there's a lot of like very beautiful, voluptuous women like sprawled on some curling trees and they're holding like a can of coffee. <laughs> you're supposed to buy that. And this is like, this reminds me a lot of um, the Moulin Rouge era in Paris. Yep. And I didn't realize until I saw photos that a lot of the Parisian tube entrances are Art Nouveau style. Mm-hmm. Um, And as soon as I saw those tube entrances, because they're, you know, ornate and kind of like fine metal and there's nothing really pointy about them. They're very organic. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, totally elves. That makes sense. (laughs) Also, things I wandered around Paris seeing, but not knowing much about. So that was kind of fun to be like, oh, hey, cool. Yeah. So we'll look at a couple different people's thoughts on this. Let's take some examples from Tolkien. In The Fellowship of the Ring, Lothlorien is described as such. This is from chapter six. Uh, the branches of the Malorn tree grew out nearly straight from the trunk and then swept upward, but near the top, the main stem divided into a crown of many boughs, and among these they found that there had been built a wooden platform, or flet, as such things were called in those days. The elves call it a talon. Which I just thought was like a kind of fun, pretty description of what we see in the movies, which that imagery is different than what you see in the movies because in the movies of Lothlorien, there is much more of this Art Nouveau style with like the staircases that wrap around the trunk mm-hmm. and end up in these talons. Mm-hmm. And in the Lord of the Rings, as they're described, it seems a little bit more straightforward and less fancy. Mm-hmm. So we're working off the assumption here that um, Alan Lee 
kind of took his own devices in a lot of ways with making this Art Nouveau. And then that style is kind of what has been perpetuated. Um, so a lot of the like design drawings that you see for the creation of the movie that are Alan Lee's, they are very Art Nouveau. So they do differentiate a little bit from kind of the simplicity with which Tolkien describes them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of good to have that through line. Like the fact that Alan Lee was thinking Art Nouveau for the elves in general and not just Lothlorien or Rivendell. He's like the elves all kind of have this style. And you see it in Rivendell as well with kind of the the way the um, beams and the arches of doorways and things of that nature are carved. Mm-hmm. It's very sinuous, very organic. And so MiddleEarthArchitecture.com, uh, who we referenced a little bit before, also draws... I know, I'm like, this guy has a blog that is literally about the architecture of Middle Earth in comparison to our architecture. I mean, he just really nailed the URL. He's like, here's what I do. <laughs> Yep, yep. And I'm like, of course you you got that URL because who else is going to have a blog called that? I love it. He starts his blog by quoting the Silmarillion, which says, And above all, their love for the beauty of nature was infinite. It is, in fact, timeless and unaging, just like the elves. Think of a tree, strong and old, alive and resilient to wind, water, time. And so Middle Earth Architecture, he doesn't really have a name, so I'll just call him that, I guess, says, so Art Nouveau is characterized by the predominance of curves instead of straight lines and very dynamic, organic, and rich decorations, usually stylized, graceful, and elegant. There was a great desire of renewal with the reawakening of the art in all its forms and a great study of beauty. The primary source materials used were the glass and wrought iron and cast iron, leading to a real form of sculpture and architecture. The glass was usually worked and crafted in different colors and with vegetal decorations. Same thing happened with the cast iron, which is one of the most soft metals. This means it is easier to work on and to shape it in very rich and detailed forms like leaves, flowers, and branches. The result were usually supple lines, elegant and apparently light, yet strong and ageless like elves. You said vegetal forms? Yes. Like vegetables? Like 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 of of vegetable or vegetation vegetation <laughs> i love that i haven't heard that word before really but it totally makes sense yeah vegetal forms no i don't <laughs> like having the appearance of vegetables i love or it vegeta- yeah i mean i guess that seems a really familiar word to me because it it might just be i wonder if this person speaks french because you can say vegetal um and you're like referring to vegetation or leaves and stuff okay like the top of corinthian columns yeah. It's like a big salad on it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. A big salad. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm sure the Romans would love to hear that. <laughs> they ate salad. They wore salad on their heads. It was laurels. I'm lying. <laughs> anyway, we're going to just let that one slide. We'll see if that makes it into the podcast. <laughs> I really hope it does. Please leave it, Please leave it in. Uh-huh. So that was Middle Earth Architecture and his idea. He combined... Lothlorien, Rivendell, all of them onto this one all-encompassing Art Nouveau style because of the connection of the vegetal, organic Art Nouveau and the kind of organic one-with-nature aspect of the elves. Mm -hmm. I do want to say one thing that I've noticed and was brought to my attention by a Tumblr. I didn't find the source, but I remember the Tumblr was Glemshu. They pointed out that elves just don't have handrails on anything. 
and um that's all very like organic and flowy and one with naturey but also it's quite risky considering how many uh tall trees they build things on and the rivendell like there's some steep drop-offs there um it's quite dangerous <laughs> but remember elves have a, a really really good balance uh-huh like legolas just runs on top of the snow oh, fuck, you're fine. right yeah yeah any mortals might die. These are not accessible to mortals, but <laughs> to elves, it's fine. There's ableism happening here. Yeah. Elvism. <laughs> also to point out in that regard is there's no windows or doors as well, which means that the wind and the rain and all the other nature elements can come in just mm. as easily as the sunlight. Mm -hmm. So there's that aspect. I need of to it see some well. soggy bedraggled elves. I need it. I don't know if that ever happens, <laughs> except when they're like stuffed into the wine barrels and bobbing down the river nope those are dwarves those are dwarves not elves fuck you just want to picture like i'm just trying to picture something wet and bobbing <laughs> perfect oh perfect <laughs> we're gonna pardon my momentary synapses lapse um dwarves not elves yes elves don't get wet there we go no oh god tragic for them i'm sure <laughs> I'm just, I'm just digging myself a hole with a teaspoon today, aren't I? <laughs> I love it. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, I derailed. No, this. I love it. No, I love the derailing. Mm -hmm. Deflowering? Yes. Anyways. Devegetaling. Devegetaling. <laughs> Devegetalization. Uh, <laughs> I might have just made that word up. I bet you did. Um, yeah. So here's where it gets kind of fun is because if we go back to the Journal of Tolkien Studies and Johanna Brooks's 20-page treatise on architecture and culture in Middle-earth, she breaks it down in a different way. She says that Rivendell is more the Art Nouveau style of art and Lothlorien is Gothic, Ooh. which I find very weird. But let me explain why she says this. So as we know, we've talked about Art Nouveau and how it looks and all that jazz. Yeah. So... She starts this entire thing saying, to claim Rivendell is the example of Art Nouveau style in Middle-earth is difficult, as Tolkien rarely describes Rivendell in detail. And I was like, no, they totally describe it. I have this really great image in my head. Went back, read the entire chapter um, called Mini Meetings in mm -hmm. the Fellowship of the Ring mm -hmm. when they end up in Rivendell after the flight to the ford and the ring wraiths get washed away down the river, right? Yeah. Bill was out for a few days. Went, reread it. She's right. There is no description of the actual architecture of Rivendell outside of Frodo opened his eyes and found himself staring at a ceiling of dark wood beams richly carved. Um, in The Hobbit, it talks about how they enter the valley and there's this bridge and the air is warmer. And so, you know, this entire thing, of, oh, we've come to safety. It's warm and hospitable, um, but not actually any architectural descriptions. Mm. And this will be kind of fun for you, Hannah, but the main descriptions are of the people, the elvish voices, mm -hmm. the magic of elvish voices, singing, and then three pages devoted to Bilbo's song about Arendil. Hmm. Oh, and a lot about the beauty of Arwen and who Aragorn is, and more about Arwen. <laughs> and that about sums up that chapter. There's a lot of Arwen talk. <laughs> There's a lot of Arwen. And then like when they're talking about, you know, taking the ring on the quest and everything there's still not a lot of descriptions of architecture because that's all about the humdrum we got to go throw this thing in the fire mm -hmm. so i realized that my entire vision of rivendell that feels so crystal clear is all based off of the movies which Hell is yeah. art nouveau 
and then I went and searched for any drawings that Tolkien drew of Rivendell because he does like some beautiful drawings and watercolors. Um, I don't know if you've seen much of his stuff, but it has this really interesting, like almost like curvy hill quality and there's almost a lack of perspective. But they, like, there's just enough perspective for you to know that there's supposed to be perspective, but not enough perspective for it to feel like there's a lot of depth. Uh. It's fascinating. I mean, I've mostly um, just seen his very ugly little dragons that I love very much. Yeah, they're really cute. The no, his, his entire like drawings of the Shire and Hobbiton and Rivendell, they're really beautiful. Um, yeah, I'll check them out. But there's not, there's not much there. It's a big river with a big plain stone bridge. And a singular house that is half hidden behind a copse of trees. Mm-hmm. And the house itself, there's two different like images of it. And one of them has columns. And one of them has a red roof that I was like, Mulan! <laughs> and that's and a bunch more trees. And that's about it. So That's all that is described? That's all that he did of Rivendell. That's the only drawing that... To- and it's oh. really like the house is tiny. Most of it is about the surrounding wilds and this river and how, like the big cleft in the in the mountains but there really there isn't any architectural really there's one house hmm weird yeah he didn't really think about that one too much or he did and he purposefully was like no it's a singular house in the middle of this like hidden cleft in the mountains and it's well sheltered and well hidden and magically secure and that's all and then he doesn't describe it at all in the books. Right. It's, it's very bizarre that this, like, kind of important place is mysteriously undocumented. Yeah. Does he describe other architecture in those books? I did not go to find that as much. Okay. I know that he describes Mirkwood mm-hmm. in The Hobbit. What about, like, Gondor or Minas Tirith or anything? No, yes, he describes Gondor a lot. Okay. Like the entire how the city is shaped and how it looks like a ship's bow. Like he's very specific. How the city is shaped. The city is shaped. <laughs> um, like he's he's very specific about the twelve layers and the kind of stone and the crystal and that there's mm. the ship's prow coming through and the Tower of Ecteleon looks like this and then it's like this and he describes Medusel, the Hall of Rohan, pretty detailed as well. Mm. And then Rivendell just isn't. I wonder if some of it is because, like, elvish stuff is so, like, I don't know, beyond his own ken, you know? He's like, I got a very clear image of the hobbits. I am a hobbit. I grew up in, you know, the Shire, basically. And then he's like, men, how men build. I know how men build stuff, you know? Humans, we like to build these specific cities. And then for elves, he was like, I cannot fathom what an inhuman eternal race of magical beings who are very hot would build so i'm not even gonna try that's disappointing to me i'm like Tolkien, come on pull your socks up and try this but oh well i don't know man a drawing of a house in rivendell and that is what we've created 30 languages and that's all. I mean, priorities, and I get it. I don't get it, but I, I can <laughs> sympathize with wanting to focus on the things you're really interested in when you're writing. But also, like, come on. Fair. Get a little alien with it. Get a little weird. Right? But yeah, so I found that super fascinating. Uh, so Brooks goes on and says, uh, but what can be gathered is its adherence to Art Nouveau principles. 
While it is surrounded by natural formations, such as the valley and river, Rivendell is the least organic form of elven architecture. Its protection comes from typical fortification methods, such as a strategic position uh, hidden almost anywhere between them and the mountains, a narrow bridge without a parapet, and the strength of stone. These features do not obviously adhere to Art Nouveau principles, but an analysis of Greenhall's lexical choices is illuminating. And Greenhall is quoted as saying, many designers conventionalized nature by breaking it into abstracted, flattened forms. Others celebrated nature by transposing plants, animals, and insects directly and realistically into their work. This indicates that Art Nouveau, far from being integrating and natural, is imposing, forcing nature into unnatural formations. Realistic representations of nature are not at its forefront. Rivendell is highly fabricated, composed of stone that must be quarried and processed, then constructed, and finally embellished with design. Though beautiful, Rivendell has an alien quality within the landscape, which can be deciphered from its name, with Tolkien's nomenclature loosely translating it as Cloven Dell. I don't know. I'm a little mm. not taken with her descriptions or her argument for why Rivendell is Art Nouveau. Yeah. Well, I feel like they focused on some of the weirder things where it sounds like you have a bunch of animal stickers on stuff. Animal and bug stickers. Yeah. And this like sense of why the strength of stone is Art Nouveau, especially since because there is no description of Rivendell, as we just talked about. So like mm -hmm. she's really going off of the fact that there's a bridge and they're surrounded by stone. I mean, that's pretty thin argument to make. Yeah. So, like, while Art Nouveau was used as the inspiration for the movies, obviously, there's nothing to say that Tolkien himself used Art Nouveau as any kind of inspiration. And she's trying to say that he is. Yeah. So I'm a little, I'm a little unconvinced by her argument. I feel like Tolkien would have had a better sense of what to describe if he was basing it on an art movement that occurred, you know, before yeah. he was born, but not a lot before. No, not a lot before. And also... I mean, that stuff still exists. Like you said, you can go to France now and you can see the Art Nouveau movement. Yeah. You can see it in Barcelona. He was in France. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was, you know, fighting people in France. Yeah, and I don't, I guess we know, never talked about if he might have gone to Paris at all ever for a day. Unclear. Or something. Yeah. And what he knew of the movement. And we don't know if he knows much about architecture. I feel like his attention is mostly grabbed by natural things. Just from his description of how his trip to uh, Switzerland and the Alps stuck with him for so long as a child. Like, yeah. he's very much in tune with what nature looks like and describing the natural space. And then if you get to architecture he's like uh well here's some stuff i've studied you know like here's what some like mound houses would look like and here's what it would look like in the old english times when they had the mead halls you know but yeah more modern stuff not really his thing and he was trying to write you know a history of England, maybe he wouldn't be like, well, of course they're connected with the 1910 movement of architecture. Because that's really, really recent and contemporary <laughs> for something that I want to be kind of outside of time. Yeah, and in the distant past. 
Yeah. Brooks also goes on to argue that La Florian is more similar to Gothic architecture. Brooks um, uses the works of Ruskin, uh, who is a art historian, architectural historian, um, who arg- to argue that La Florian is more similar to Gothic architecture, insofar as, quote, Ruskin claimed Gothic architecture is liberating, prioritizing the creativity of the artisan. As argued in the discussion of classical architecture's influence in Minas Tirith, the ancients' desire for perfection was all that was wrong with the style for Ruskin, whereas the Gothic artisan, quote, is left free to represent what subjects he chooses and will endeavor to represent it as he sees it, end quote. Ruskin claimed that Gothic architecture is rugged, more similar to Scandinavian or Norse style than the classical Roman or Greek. However, when I looked up Gothic architecture, because I was like, maybe I'm misthinking what Gothic architecture is. But no, it was everything that I thought it was. All the pointiness. Um, yeah, all the pointiness, like the, the Notre Dame. Stammy, um, stabby, yeah. Yeah, it's characterized by five main elements. The large stained glass windows, pointed arches, ribbed vaults, flying buttresses, and ornate decoration. I then compared these to Alan Lee's inspiration art for La Florian in the movies, mm-hmm. and there were some like pointy arches, but they looked almost more like like they had a really tall point and then a curve, which you don't really see with Gothic as much. Yeah. But these but the the same things were seen in Rivendell. And all of the like ornamentation underneath these pointy arches uh, was very much art nouveau style. And I was like, I don't see at least in the movies, I don't see anything resembling Gothic. Granted, they probably had more of a through line there. But also, there was nothing that she quoted within the description of La Florian that would allude to a Gothic inclination compared to Rivendell. Yeah. She basically just quoted a bunch of like art historian scholars and was like, and this fits. <laughs> So therefore, it is. And I was like, no. I mean, the only gothic influences I can see in that movie are something like Minas Morgul. Yeah, that, or Baradur. Yeah, I'm like, that is that is pretty gothic. And some of the stuff with Minas Tirith as well, just in the sense of like that grand cathedral kind of feeling. And I guess maybe yeah. that's, I wouldn't call all cathedrals gothic for sure. I've been in a lot of cathedrals because churches are free to go into kids and the architecture is awesome. And they're not as hot when you're really hot. You can usually sit down too when you're traveling. Oh boy. Oh yeah. But the quality of a cathedral is pretty strong. Like you walk into a cathedral and you're like, these are some high damn ceilings. These windows are big. And it doesn't have to be gothic necessarily for that to be true. And I get the kind of cathedral feeling with Rivendell. I get that in Lothlorien. There's that sense of height and grandeur to it. But that is not inherent to gothic architecture. No, not at all. I like how we're just tearing these people's arguments apart. <laughs> well, we, we agree more or less with Middle Earth architecture, who is all like, it's all Art Nouveau. And we're like, yeah, that we can right. see that in the movie. Right, yeah. But again, like... Alan Lee would have chosen from what he, like his own knowledge of architecture and inspiration, which is obviously influenced by what has come before. Just as much as Meduseld or Gondor are influenced by Beowulf and classical Roman, mm-hmm. there was going to be an inspiration for the Elvish dwellings. Yeah. 
but Tolkien himself doesn't really describe the architecture outside the bounds of what's useful to know. Like they were in these things in the trees called talons. It was basically a platform. Mm-hmm. He made a fancy word for a architecture thing. You know, that's right. his thing. He loves a word to make it, you know, his own. Yeah. And like the halls have names because they're given significance and that's important. Again, naming. But the the what it looks like, it's almost like he leaves the reader to create in their own mind. Like rather than, it's like the show not tell version of a story, right? Yeah. Give a brief idea and then let the reader create in their own minds what they want it to be. Let their imagination do the the, the beautiful work of creation. Yeah, it's a little bit of a, a sneaky, lazy writer's trick where you're like, I don't have to remember all these passageways or pathways or small architectural details if I don't describe them and I just kind of leave it up to the reader to come up with it, which I imagine Tolkien learned from when his son was like, the door was green and he had to go right down the Hobbit so that his kid would stop fucking with him. I was just thinking of that of like, yeah, he just wanted to get stop getting shit, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I also was thinking, this is a bit of a, a tangent, but I've been thinking about this because I've been reading a whole bunch of sci-fi fantasy kind of vibe books. Uh, I, I talked previously about Gideon the Ninth, that, that book. Um, yeah. And that's like a space opera kind of thing uh, with necromancy. And I was thinking about the way that you describe something that is very alien, but you don't get people bogged down in the linguistic details of when a culture would come up with their own entirely new word for rocket ship, basically, or they'd come up with their whole new term for church or library. It's like, you don't need those kind of things. And it's that quality to me of translating so that you can get caught up in the weirdness of the story without having to pause and remember what every single little detail means within the context of this world. And I'm wondering, I mean, Talon's a very minor word that Tolkien is giving us, but also like, why didn't he just have platform in there? He was like, I need to come up with this specific word for a specific thing. And one of the things that I'm seeing uh, in done well in a series that I'm reading, Brandon Sanderson's um, Way of Kings series, it's got some very concrete earth-based details in there in a very foreign world. And then it'll just chuck an idea at you suddenly and you're kind of thrown out of it and you're reminded that you're in a new place. Um, and that's done very well. So I, this is me, again, not having read any Tolkien, wondering how he balances that kind of stuff in his writing, where he's like, I'm going to throw some words at you just because I made them up and they're fun. Or is he throwing some words at us so that we are reminded that we are experiencing a fantasy? I think for him, it would probably be the authenticity of the translation mm-hmm. of like having put so much work into the creation of the languages and the cultures of those languages that he wanted to keep that alive. Not only remind you that, yes, it's a different culture in a different world, but be like, this is a culture and this is the word they use for it. And we are going to use that because that is important. It is theirs. Okay. I like that. Thank you for explaining for me in this minor detail of translating. (laughs) Hey, it's good detail. Translating fantasy. I thought it was really sweet. Brooke did quote Tolkien, uh, who wrote in a letter to the Daily Telegraph, uh, he wrote, Lothlorien is beautiful because the trees were loved. 
That's so sweet. I know, which, you know, goes, it, it's a look at elves and their connection to nature and vice versa, which I find is beautiful. Uh, that is all I have on elves. So we'll go to dwarves. From above ground and tree-like to below ground and rooty. I don't know. Below ground and tunnely. Tunnely and rooty. I'm trying to keep it with a tree. Oh, the, oh yes, I see. I, I could be totally wrong though. So <laughs> we're gonna we'll just go with it. It's fine. So everything online calls dwarven architecture art deco. Oh. And then so there's a wonderful, wonderful because okay, so in comparison to Rivendell, where there's like no description in the Fellowship of the Ring, when they're to- going into Moria, Tolkien describes Moria in a lot of description. Ooh. He writes, and this is from Fellowship. Uh, book two, chapter four, A Journey in the Dark, which I want to just say is kind of fun because in The Hobbit there was riddles in the dark. Anyway, <laughs> he kind of does some really fun like chapter title similarities. Anyway, that's awesome. He writes, great shadows sprang up and fled and for a second they saw a vast roof far above their heads upheld by many mighty pillars hewn of stone. Before them and on either side stretched a huge empty hall its black walls, polished and smooth as glass, flashed and glittered. Three other entrances they saw, dark black arches, one straight before them eastwards and one on, on either side. The passage twisted round a few turns and then began to descend. It went steadily down for a long while before it became level once again. The air grew hot and stifling, but it was not foul, and at times they felt currents of cooler air upon their faces, issuing from half-guessed openings in the walls. There were many of these. In the pale ray of the wizard's staff, Frodo caught glimpses of stairs and arches and of other, a journey in the dark passages and tunnels sloping up or running steeply down or opening blankly dark on either side. It was bewildering beyond hope of remembering. The mines of Moria were vast and intricate beyond the imagination of Gimli, Glowin's son, dwarf of the mountain race, though he was. Hmm. He's like a little country bumpkin of a dwarf. In the big, yeah. confusing maze city. But yeah, so I mean, he doesn't describe necessarily like it was shaped like this and looked like this, but there's still a lot more of like, and there were arches and they were hewn of stone and it was big and vast and there were tunnels that went all different directions, which gives a better sense of a space. Yeah, you get that in the movies. They did a really good job with how much shadow there was and the vastness of them just walking through these places. And it makes the ambush that much more dramatic because you see them coming from so far away, but you have nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. That's so well done. I do want to say, I was thinking about it and um, remembering the the doorway into Moria. They go in the back door. Yeah. Yeah. And it has that Art Nouveau elven style because it was kind of like a back door for elves, maybe. It was it was made by the elves. So it was when the dwarves and the elves were friends. Actually, Tolkien did this wonderful favor and actually had like an entire page of just the image of that thing above the tree in Moria. This guy. Oh yeah. The trees. The trees. Yeah. Oh my god, did he draw that? He drew he drew that, yeah. Oh, shit. And it's so it was written in Elvish and it was when Narvi, who was a dwarf, helped make them with Celebrimbor of Holland. And so it basically was when the dwarves and the elves were actually in trade with each other and um, shared their 
cultures because the mm-hmm. the mirror because it needs to be the the moon signs right so it was open yeah they could see it when the moonlight hit it because it was made with mithril of the dwarves but then was elvish magic basically okay can you read the elvish and no but it's written under, underneath it. It says, Here is written in the Fianorian characters according to the mode of Beleriand. Enya durin aun moria, pedo melon amimno, imnarvi hein ekant, calembrimbor eregion, te tant ituihim. The script is kind of curvy, so it's kind of hard to read. Ah. Anyway, fun little tangent there. But yes, um, you are correct. That was. When dwarves and elves were of happiness together and actually worked together. Yeah. And if you've seen the movies, that's an example of some Art Nouveau looking shit. Yeah. Curly and curvy. Curly and curvy and tree-like and organic. Beautiful. Vegetal. Vegetal. So Middle-earth architecture goes on to say, but how did they shape the tunnels? In the movie version, everything about dwarves is regular and geometric, and this might be chosen to be the opposite of the organic and flowing shapes of the elves. But let's think of their cities. They had secret entrances that worked under strict circumstances with detailed mechanical locks. Surely they had very complicated ventilation and hydraulic systems to provide air, light, and water to each level. Most important, they knew how to carve the stone into new caves without taking the whole mountain down with them. The fair conclusion is that they were engineers and architects at most, and so experts of mathematics and geometry, which brings us to their style, sharp and geometric. Even their runes and the language itself is as sharp as their architecture. Mm. The Art Deco movement was characterized by a massive use of zigzag or chest shapes, V motifs, and sun rays. And we can see these patterns not only in dwarven architecture, but also in their clothes. And it was a kind of synthetic style, but at the same time also volumetrical and opulent. One of the first things we see in the movies, both in Moria and Erebor, is the particular shape of the columns and the arches although I'm not sure I can call them arches. An arch is formed by uh, voussoirs, precisely cut so that they press against each other and conduct loads uniformly down to their vertical supports. We don't see any voussoirs in these structures. As you can see in the pictures above, the included pictures, on the contrary, it seems a monolithic block carved directly in the mountain, like also the capitals, pillars, plinths, and bases themselves. The trapezoidal shapes were also used extensively, both in the Art Deco movement and in the works of the dwarves. That's so interesting. The Art Deco movement is like very 1920s to me. It's very silhouette heavy mm-hmm. and very much about the balance of like strong lines. And I don't know, it, it feels very grand. Like when you see some Art Deco stuff, if you just Google it, you'll get some very clear pictures. It's all very logo-like yes, too, kind very of. very much so. Art Deco stuff makes great logos. And it was uh, 1920s through the 1930s. Yeah. And you can see that in um, architecture in America too. I think like Empire State Building is probably pretty Empire Art Deco. Empire State Building. There was a few as well. There were some other photos that he showed. Um, a lot of buildings in New York City have Art Deco, especially in like their entrances and doorways and things. They have that like trapezoidal, very blocky mm-hmm. outline. It was bigger shapes. It was less detail, but stronger lines. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the opposite of Art Nouveau, but they definitely don't mix, I would say. Like they're accomplishing two very different things. 
which is kind of funny if you use that as an analogy for the cultures of the dwarves and the elves and the fact that they really didn't mix and there was like a long-standing hostility between the two. <laughs> I mean, not forever as demonstrated by that door, the back way and the Yeah, but that, that was like a long time ago. That was Calembrimbor era, like first age yeah. way back when. So yeah, um, because the dwarves made the mines of Moria not long after they were created. Oh, that wow, that's a long time. Well, I mean, they were they went to sleep for a while, and then when they were woken up like a century after the elves, that's when they started making all these places. Wow. So it's been a while, and it's all held up really well. I mean, it's made of stone. Movies. No, and and according to uh, the books as well, Moria continued. Did people move back after the whole, you know, slaughter? Yes. Um, I believe, no, Gimli went to the Glittering Caves. I believe they did say that there were a couple more Durins who went back until the end of the line of Durin. Oh, okay. So they re reclaimed that one from the goblins. Yes. Sweet. Well, after the ring was destroyed, getting rid of bad things got pretty easy. Really? Did they like feed off that yeah part of that was just like they were feeding off of the shadow and the 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 power and the energy of sauron and okay but i did think it interesting to think about dwarves as these architects and engineers and mathematicians because yeah whether or not they had what we think of as math to build the mines of moria in the heart of a mountain without destroying yourself and then also having ventilation. Like I think of the miners in the States where you're like, that's just a hole that goes down into the ground and you might die because mm. it might cave in on you if you aren't careful. And you can hit pockets of gas as well. And that's why they brought the canaries. Yep, they had the canaries. But uh, I hadn't really thought of it in terms of the, like they're, it's almost a masterpiece. Yeah, it's a feat of engineering for sure. I yeah. mean, digging into something and keeping that roof up when you have a whole mountain pushing down on you. And we, we have it in modern day, like on Earth. Yeah. There are plenty of underground, giant, beautiful living thing spaces. They're old, usually. They're not really being lived in anymore. Mm. Quite a few of them are in Egypt. Yeah, and they've actually got some uh, caves in France that uh, millennials are moving into. Because huh. I can afford to live in the caves in France. That actually sounds pretty dope. I'd kind of, it does I'd, sound I'd do that. Good. I would totally do that. Yeah. It's interesting that they took a very hard route, the dwarves, with building. I'm thinking about it, and like I've been to a lot of natural caves in the rock. Um, I've been to jewel caves. I've been to the glowworm caves in uh, New Zealand and stuff like that, which are very, you know, water-based for the most part, like water carved those. But they have some really beautiful organic shapes, a lot of beautiful stone, and you do not see that in the movies at all. You see it as a constructed and very much um, engineered place to live. Mm -hmm. It's not natural at all. And that's a lot more work <laughs> to not give into that sort of flowing lines and dripping and all of that. It's very dry in there. It is, it is powerful. It is huge. 
and it is a very much a status symbol and it makes sense that they've been around since the first age building these mines of moria digging too deep as it says in the movie uncovering something that should have stayed buried but the balrog but still dope as hell extremely good stuff that they made and it's a bit more of that i don't know that kind of attitude that is ascribed to dwarves where it is about creation and it is about invention and imposing your will on nature yeah less going with the flow they don't really go with the flow much do they no unless they're in the barrels well that's true they don't have they don't have a choice (laughs) bobbing bobbing yeah dwarves do your dig and engineer the fun shit (laughs) make your living Make 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 a living. Okay. The mines are dope as hell. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't work. That's okay. Usually it doesn't work. The honestly. effort is worth it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing about elves and dwarves and their architecture. It's cool to visualize what it was based on. The Art Nouveau for the elves and Art Deco for the dwarves. Yeah, it's just cool to think about the real world corollaries that you could work with on that one Uh, and thank you all for listening to us talk about this and if you want to email us and give us any feedback or suggest any episodes we are glitterinthegold at gmail.com if you could like and subscribe to us on whatever podcasting app you found us on that would be amazing leaving us a review would be great share us with your friends if you think that they'd be interested and we appreciate you very much Y'all on the shire side.